You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Joined today by my colleague and co-host and great friend, Dr. Steve Morrison, and by Anna Carroll, who's part of Steve's program at CSIS. Steve and Anna have written a terrific piece on CSIS's website about the WHO and the Trump administration, and it is entitled WHO and President Trump on the Ledge. Subtitle is Throwing Down the Gauntlet. Anna, can you explain to us why you wrote this piece? Sure. Thanks so much, Andrew. And thanks for having me on today. So, you know, a lot, of course, has been written about the Trump administration's controversial decision to suspend uh, U.S. funding for the WHO for an interim review of the agency's handling of the COVID-19 response. But we wanted to do here was sort of elucidate some of the early sort of milestones and decision points that the administration pointed to in justifying their response and help to elucidate the difference in roles between the WHO as sort of a technical and scientific authority versus the role of the WHO member states. Um, and it was important to us that we sort of draw that distinction so that we could point to the role of sort of diplomacy and a potential diplomatic solution that might exist to overcome this impasse. So one of the things we tried to do in the piece was, again, sort of identify or demonstrate how the Trump administration conflated the role of China, which is a member state, of course, the WHO, as the U.S. is and as 194 countries are, and sort of reiterate that it was China that orchestrated a massive cover-up of the, the initial outbreak in Wuhan, as opposed to the WHO, which is what the Trump administration is insinuating. And so in trying to clarify that distinction, we wanted to highlight, you know, potential opportunities for a way out for for next steps and included an appeal to Congress um, to, to work to pursue sort of quiet diplomacy and to to work alongside G7 member states in particular to try to you know, resolve the interim review issues and then ultimately restore funding for for the WHO from from the United States. But you point out in the piece and I want to bring Steve in that the WHO isn't perfect. And you also point out that the anti-China feelings in the United States among both Republicans and Democrats, you know, hasn't slackened. In fact, you know, uh, Pew did a poll about a week and a half ago that showed that, you know, 75% of Republicans uh, have very negative views towards China and 65% of Democrats have very negative views towards China. Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about this? There is certainly, I mean, what prompted President Trump on April 14th to take the step he took, right? I think a large part of it is this deep reservoir of anger uh, among the conservative China hawks, but among others against China and its behavior in this period and other behaviors. And that deep anger spilled over also to become anger against WHO because they, they watched WHO's behavior in January and some of them interpreted it as overly solicitous of the Chinese at the very earliest moment in the crisis. And so they sort of conflated the two and accused WHO of becoming a tool of the Chinese, of being complicit in misrepresenting reality to the world. They made all of these very grave charges against WHO. 
that were highly damaging. And then they just suggested that we're not only were we going to do a review, a suspend aid and do a review, but we're soon thereafter that we were actually going to look for alternatives in the midst of this. And this is coming at a moment when the pandemic is still at risk of regression in Asia, Europe, and the United States and Canada, but it's also moving very rapidly into low income and lower middle income countries, which is going to hit with a special ferocity and damage. And WHO is the lead agency for those countries in driving the response. And here we are, we're going to blow a hole in its budget and step back from partnering with them because of our anger against China, not really taking a full account of what the consequence is going to be. So both Anna and I were quite alarmed at the gravity of all of this. And for a lot of Americans, it became, I think, it's a strike against multilateralism. A lot of Americans don't like the UN, don't like multilateralism. They don't necessarily know much about what WHO does. And so uh, this was also growing out of the president's own anxiety about the re-election and about what's happening in the United States. The tableau in the United States is very haunted at the moment, right? We've got 1.2 million people that have been infected. We're closing in on 70,000 deaths. We've got 30 million people unemployed. It is a dark, dark moment. So shifting the blame onto an external party, WHO in China, is a familiar tactic. It's a familiar way of going about dealing with crises by this administration. And we just found it hugely alarming. And we were trying to come up with some very balanced way of saying, look, most of these charges are baseless. And we tried to enumerate how baseless they were. And the cost to WHO and to the global response will be consequential. Let's try to find a way back from that. So Anna, tell us what WHO needs to do and why the United States needs to help support WHO on these major fronts in responding to the pandemic. Sure. So, I mean, as Steve mentioned, the WHO is the major, you know, not only technical authority, but also sort of support in terms of implementation of public health programs and global health programs, particularly in the most vulnerable and fragile parts of the world. So in low and middle income countries in particular. Um, so in those countries, you know, the WHO, since the, the COVID response was initiated, you know, has been instrumental in helping those countries to secure PPE in, you know, what has been described as sort of the wild, wild west of a global market as demand has surged and supply chains are really strained. Um, so that's, you know, one basic example. But they're also just, pro again, providing technical support and technical guidance to public health officials on the ground in some of these extremely vulnerable settings and you know places like refugee camps and in places like Yemen which is you know have has experiencing a tremendous humanitarian crisis so in these sorts of situations where health systems are already underdeveloped strained you know extremely weak and vulnerable where sanitation systems are poor and things like hand washing, which is what you know we're relying on in, in many parts of the U.S. and social distancing to, to prevent the spread of the disease, where these things are, are either impossible or close to impossible, the World Health Organization is just a critical player in shoring up the COVID-19 response. And so by defunding um, or withholding funding or freezing funding to the WHO at this moment, the U.S. is jeopardizing that support. And I think that that reflects 
sort of a lack of recognition of how if the virus continues to rage in insecure and unstable and fragile parts of the world, Americans and American interests are still at risk, even if we are able to control the, the outbreak in the United States, which, as Steve points out, we, we have not yet. If the virus continues to rage globally, that continues to pose a threat. And I think that this is something that the administration just is not fully taking account of with this. And that's reflected in this decision. Steve, what do you think it would take to get the United States back on track with WHO? And is it possible with this administration? Well, I think the odds are difficult and long, but let me say a few things that I think argue in favor of continuing to try. One is that the administration took this bold step and it followed through on it and it found itself conspicuously isolated internationally. Nobody charged to the fore to wrap their arms around the Trump administration position against WHO. Quite the contrary. Unity among the G other G7 members who made it very, very clear to President Trump in a video conference call that they objected strenuously. African leadership fully united against this. They made a bid to try and get Australia, Japan, Poland, Hungary to step forward. They stepped, Australia stepped forward in terms of its anti-China feelings and call for an investigation of China. None of them have come forward with an explicit call for investigating or putting pressure and isolating WHO. So the administration finds itself very isolated uh, at this moment in time. And does it care? Maybe, maybe not. But it would certainly be helpful to sort of point out that the rest of the world thinks this is a terrible decision goes against global equities around this response and the need for a global response. And ultimately, it's going to hurt the U.S. standing in the world and it's going to hurt our national security. So that's one argument. Another is that Republican senators in particular play a vitally important role in trying to calm the waters and quietly work with the administration to find a way back from this. You can have continued rhetorical slights against the WHO and you can push for valid measures to to do after action reports. And what we propose is what was done in the Ebola outbreak, which was to do an early after action review that has credibility, that is not gratuitous and does not engage in falsehoods, but which is based on looking at performance by WHO in this very difficult period and get that rolling. And that is expected to happen under any circumstances of an emergency. It's normal practice. So why not channel energies into something like that, get it going so that it comes forward sometime next year. We're going to have more waves of this. We're going to this is not going to go away anytime soon. And so let's and let's appeal to calmer heads and calmer voices, Democrat and Republican in the Senate to try and work on this. And let's let's try to promote a kind of quiet back channel dialogue between WHO and the Trump administration. There still are quiet back channel dialogues going on. We don't know much about what's on the table or where it's heading, but I'm not entirely without hope that some kind of face saving measures could occur, could be taken up that would allow the restoration of aid and that we could move forward without this becoming a huge stumbling block for the U.S. If the U.S. carries forward with this, it is ruining its standing globally at this particular moment in time. What's the off-ramp for the Trump administration to reconcile with the WHO? Anna, what do you think? I think an interim review is probably 
the best sort of face-saving measure that I think, you know, most parties could accept because, as he said, you know, reviews are, are standard practice in emergencies. And I think even in the midst of an emergency, it's important to be sort of evaluating and self-correcting, which, you know, the WHO is probably arguing that they're already doing. But I, I think that that could be a possible off-ramp at this current moment. I think the fear, you know, as Steve has mentioned, is that, you know, it's an election year. And there are huge swaths of this country that are vehemently anti-UN, anti-multilateralism, and, you know, as we've also seen, itching to, to sort of move past the social distancing, extreme social distancing measures and, and lockdown measures um, and try to reopen the economy. And so I think that this, this move sort of plays into those, those folks' hands and that just it might be the, sort of the most politically expedient um, sort of way forward. Let me add just a couple of things. The WHO has put out a timeline of events in January. Much of this debate is around what happened in January and did Taiwan give some forewarning to the WHO about human-to-human transmission? And were there critical delays in declaring a public health emergency of international concern, et cetera, et cetera? The facts on almost all of those things are uh, don't line up with the allegations made by the by the Trump administration So I think a a certain hesitation in WHO is they don't want to be buying into falsehoods. They want to be able to to litigate the facts, but they also have a huge burden of leading the global response in those countries that are at risk of rebound, in those countries that are now swiftly moving into this, in coordinating all of the R&D, complicated R&D measures around getting a vaccine, getting to therapies, coordinating the international response on that. There's a huge funding gathering pledging conference today called by the EU with many others there, Norway, UK, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Canada. The United States is absent from that. Today, May 4th, is is a $8.2 billion pledging conference to get the funding required to get these field trials on vaccines and therapies through the process. Huge capital requirements to drive forward what CEPI is doing, what Gavi Alliance is doing Global Fund Unitaid, and the U.S. is absent. It's excused itself. WHO is one of the sponsors of this. Uh, Dr. Tedros will be speaking there. So we're seeing a shift of global diplomacy away from the United States with the United States off on the sidelines, not present, not showing up. Not even a note taker. We'll see what happens. I mean, the, the sponsors, the EU has left the door open and has gone out of its way to make sure that the United States is, of course, welcome. So what percent of WHO's funding comes from the United States and how much do they need to make up without us funding it? Our commitments to them are uh, in the current two year biannual budget is eight hundred ninety three million dollars. So let's say that's about four, you know, a little under four fifty per year. And, and that's a mixture of assessed contributions, which uh, go towards the core administrative costs. And then 80% of our money is voluntary contributions, which go to principally to programs like infectious diseases, polio, HIV, TB, malaria, maternal and neonatal health, immunizations, uh, nutrition, things that enjoy deep, long-standing bipartisan support in Congress and which are vitally important in low-income countries by WHO. Plus, we support a very large segment of the emergency programs. So you take those away. But we haven't seen the results of the review yet. The review might, back to your what's an off-ramp, the review might come up with some somewhat 
modest and symbolic measures like, well, we're going to quit doing A, B, and C, but the rest of it continues. That's a face-saving measure. They could show some action, put things to rest, and come back to the table. They need to separate WHO from the discussion of China. They can't lump them together. If they lump them together, it's impossible to have a civil conversation around what is WHO's role here. I think WHO in its leadership, as I said, they're putting out timelines, they're clarifying the facts, they're trying to make sure that they are continuing to say this is exactly what happened when and where. That's very, very important, I think, in just getting the the true story out in a way that's defensible and that will help over time, I think. Let me ask you both this. President Trump responds well or better when heads of major organizations or world leaders reach out directly to him. Why hasn't Dr. Tedros said to President Trump directly, I'd like to talk to you directly. I'd like to come to Washington to meet with you at the White House or, you know, start with a phone call. Why hasn't he done that? And do you think that that would be effective? We don't know exactly what's transpired in the dialogues. Um, Dr. Tedros has had very friendly conversations on multiple occasions with President Trump and with Ivanka Trump. And uh, there's a senior personality who, uh, an assistant director general in America, and Stuart Simonson, who runs the operation in North America out of New York. And Stuart was nominated by the Trump administration to fill a key American post Early on, I also want to emphasize 10% of WHO employees are U.S. citizens, and many of them CDC employees on secondment to WHO. We have deep scientific interdependent relationships between ourselves and WHO that are terribly important. But back to your question around what kind of overture might be, might be fruitful and the like, I think it all comes down to a matter of, of two things. One is Tedros is leading the international response. He's got these gargantuan things in front of him, right? He's got a pandemic unfolding uh, that is torn through Asia, Europe, North America, is now tearing through middle-income and low-income countries. He's leading that response. He's leading the response in trying to get to the technological solutions of vaccines, therapies, better diagnostic tests. And this came, I think, this, this threat of action against him came as a surprise. And I can't speak for him and I don't speak for him. I wouldn't rule out some kind of communications. Uh, I wouldn't rule out that they can find some some face-saving measures in the future. And we'll, let, we'll just have to see what happens with this review. The White House continues in daily press briefings to keep repeating some of these uh, baseless allegations. And that does not help. That does, it does not help to continue to suggest that there were communications from Taiwan in early January alleging human-to-human transmission when the emails don't show that that took place and various other, other claims that are being made by the White House press briefings. But if WHO needs the United States financially, and more importantly, if the WHO needs the United States partnership as the world leader, to accomplish the mission regarding COVID-19 and all the other diseases that it works on that you just mentioned, I would think that their number one priority for the head of the organization would be to mend fences with the current administration, no? Well, I think that's going to be a, uh, that would be a priority. I'm not sure that it would be the very top priority. I mean, I think they may have differing opinions about how fixable is this. 
they may have differing opinions around, okay, you take, you take somewhere between 300 and 450 million out of the system. That has to achieve some concurrence with Congress. The process may be protracted. It may be negotiated down into some portion of that. And in the meantime, Europeans and others are coming forward with offers that could begin to backfill. And, you know, if they're looking at this and thinking we're not sure that President Trump will necessarily be reelected in November, they could be looking at this and thinking, well, the world could look kind of different come third week of January of next year. I don't speak for them. I'm just saying on the face of it, those are all considerations saying, okay, is there a deal here? Can we find a deal here that doesn't compromise WHO or condone falsehoods? But let's let's see what we can do. Is the WHO able to be as effective without the United States? Anna? I mean, I don't think that it will be ultimately. I mean, we certainly, I certainly believe that this move hurts the WHO and therefore hurts the global response. So I think that in this moment, it will be it will be really detrimental. And historically, it will show that the, it, it had a major impact. Unfortunately, I think the, the majority of that impact will be felt, again, in the most vulnerable populations and in the most sort of fragile and vulnerable parts of the world. And whether that resonates with you know, the average American remains to be seen. I also think that, unfortunately, this incident reflects the sort of broader competitive stance that the United States and China, frankly, have taken in their COVID-19 responses, you know, an inclination toward nationalism and away from global cooperation and collaboration to overcome this, you know, catastrophic pandemic. Um, So I think that this is just sort of one manifestation of that. And even if funding is restored, I don't know that that means that the United States will sort of will take up this sort of mantle of leadership that we hoped it would and that it has in the past on global health issues that that is really needed to strengthen a truly global and sort of cooperative response. Steve, Anna, thank you very much for this discussion today. You can read their piece at CSIS.org and we'll be back this week with another podcast. Thanks very much, you guys. 